Sorry to interrupt, it's Misha here, the Conversations Managing Editor. As you probably know, the conversation relies on you, our readers, to help fund our work. Over the next two weeks, we desperately need your help to keep doing our work and to keep this podcast on air. It doesn't take much. For $30 a month, you can help us provide clean, evidence-based information. If you value what we do, please give now by visiting donate.theconversation.edu.au or by clicking on the banner ad on our homepage. And now, back to the podcast. Trust me, I'm like a smart person. From The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast where we ask the academic experts to take us behind the news headlines. I'm Sananda Cray. One in eight people in the world is an Indian under the age of 30. Ultimately, if the people of Indian Kashmir decide that they do not want to be a part of India, then all bets are off in terms of what Pakistan will do as well. All political parties will try to indulge in some sort of spinning and some sort of fake news. Here's an astonishingly large number. Around 900 million Indians are heading to the polls to decide if they want to re-elect the current government of Narendra Modi and the Hindu nationalist BJP, the party that he heads. India Tomorrow is a seven-part podcast series by The Ant Hill, produced by The Conversation UK, which is exploring some of the major issues facing India. Identity politics, the rise of Hindu nationalism, Kashmir, the role of caste and gender in shaping Indian society, and how women and young people experience these phenomena. Part 1, an episode on India's information wars and how fake news fuels violence, launched on April 9. You can sign up to the Ant Hill newsletter to stay up to date and send questions via podcast at theconversation.com or via at anthillpod on Twitter. The producers will be putting your questions to academics a bit later in the series. But today, we're hearing from Craig Jeffrey. He's the director and CEO of the Australia India Institute and a professor of development geography at the University of Melbourne. Bageshri Savyasachi, a young Indian journalist studying at the University of Technology, Sydney, who has been interning with the conversation here, spoke to Craig Jeffrey in the lead up to the election. She began by asking him about the first time Indian voters who are going to the polls in 2019 and what he thought India's young voters want. I think it's a great question. And those numbers are astonishing, aren't they? That it's very difficult, I think, for pundits to predict what precisely they'll do in terms of the elections. What's slightly easier to say, though, I think, is what's in the minds of those voters. And I I think two things are really crucial. One is jobs. So young people across India, and particularly in parts of India where the economy has been less successful at creating jobs, so some of the northern states, for example, are going to be really concerned with the capacity of the government to provide better employment opportunities. The second issue I think that they'll be very concerned about is education. So they'll be looking to see which political parties and politicians are promising to improve higher education, tertiary education more generally, the skills environment, and school education. Because for a lot of young people who aren't part of the elite in India, there is a mismatch often between the educational opportunities they obtain in school or university and then the the employment market and the demands of uh, key private sector uh, firms. So I think 
jobs and education are going to be at the top of young people's minds as they go into the polling booths. What, what are parties and politicians promising in those areas? A third area that's perhaps less obvious is the issue of, of health care uh, and public health. And my own observations as an anthropologist and human geographer working in mainly Uttar Pradesh and Uttarakhand over the past 25 years on social change is that young people are often demanding access to health services that are poorly provisioned in provincial India, particularly in relation to issues like sexual health, mental health, reproductive health. Uh, And that's an area where I think young people are uh, looking to government for more action. And I I think that that will also be in young people's minds in the lead up to the elections. What jobs are available to young people and do they want to do those jobs? Well, I think one of the stories of Indian economic growth since 1990 is its failure to create a large numbers of what what might be regarded as white-collar or middle-class jobs for the increasing numbers of young people who are getting high school matriculation certificates or degrees in India. Now, India is not especially unusual in that regard, particularly since the global financial crisis in the late 2000s. Economies around the world have often found it difficult to create uh, secure employment opportunities for people. Of course, automation, mechanization is changing the nature of work throughout the world. So this isn't specific to India, but India is a almost a very condensed or intense example of the failure of economic growth to create lots of good quality jobs. That long predates the, uh, the 2014 and the coming to power of the BJP. It's a structural feature of the Indian economy since 1990 and especially uh, since the sort of mid-2000s period. Uh, so uh, to get to your question of what jobs actually exist, um, you know, in many cases what, what we're seeing in India is... Uh, people having to realign their expectations of what work they're going to do in that five to ten year period after they graduate from high school or university. This is not new. Ronald Dorr wrote in his book The Diploma Disease in 1970 that India was the country of the BA bus conductor. So that sense of having to you know, downplay your expectations in light of circumstances is quite old in India. But now I would argue that a lot of people with bachelor's degrees in India would be very keen to have a, a job on a, on, a, on a state roadways as a, as a bus conductor, so intense and cutthroat as the employment market become. So you're seeing people with master's degrees, with PhDs, having to do you know, very small scale entre- entrepreneurial business work, uh, that you're seeing them especially having to go back into agriculture, not as large scale agricultural innovators making large amounts of money and employing other people but rather you know working on quite small plots of land in an environment where they didn't imagine that they would go back into farming so one of the alarming statistics i think is that while in two, in mo- most of the period between 2000 and 2010 the number of young people in agriculture was declining as you would expect in a country that's undergoing a structural transformation from agriculture into manufacturing and services in the 2010s, and particularly since 2014, there's been a, an, an increase in young people in agriculture. Now, that is, a, is I think, quite worrying for India and, and reflects the point that 
jobs in the modern economy are not becoming available quickly enough. Young people are not finding the infrastructural and institutional environment conducive to moving into successful sort of medium scale entrepreneurship where they employ other people and find an outlet for their talents. How crucial has mobilizing young people been to the electoral successes of the ruling party, the BJP? That's a you know an easy question to answer because of the demographic structure of of India and and the 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 figures for voting in 2014 in particular show that of course the BJP's been very successful at mobilizing people generally in India to vote for them and uh, and that includes young people uh, it's done so through making a you know a series of important statements about its approach to social and economic change and it's done so also through tapping into i think a sense of national identity that's important to young people so the bjp has been pretty successful and not just the bjp but also various organizations connected to the to the party at the grassroots level is young people support for modi on the wane a lot of young people supported him when he was first running for prime minister but now a lot of young people are feeling disappointed what do you think i i should do that classic academic thing of saying that uh, yeah, i i'm not an expert on the contemporary views of young people in india where i've done most of my research has been in uh, particular pockets of india uttar pradesh and uttarakhand and um, the the bulk of that research was done in the period between 1995 and 2010 Since 2010 my work's been mainly in a village in quite a remote part of Uttarakhand in Chamoli district and I've written quite a lot about the social and political attitudes of young people in that village. Now those are quite particular to one part of India. Like like you and like lots of people I read the newspapers, I talk to friends in different parts of India, I try to pick up on the streets a sense of the mood. Uh, but in that regard I'm an armchair or 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 amateur interpreter of young people's political views at the moment uh, and from with those caveats in in mind my sense is that young people may not support modi as much as they did 5 years ago but that doesn't mean that they won't vote for him so one needs to maybe distinguish between support and how people will actually behave in the ballot booth that uh, i think lots of people that i speak to recognize that given the high pitch to which Modi raised people's aspirations in 2014 there was always going to be a sense of disappointment that skilling you know hundreds of millions of people quickly was going to be a very tough ask and that the the vision of new india while attractive in certain respects is not borne out in the social in social reality for those outside of the elite and particularly in provincial parts of india in small town and rural india so people see on the social and economic side a kind of uh mismatch between promise and actuality and i think that's undermined a certain enthusiasm for the ruling bjp government uh, i i'm really not in a position to be able to adjudicate on the the extent to which people uh, have sort of fallen out of love with of of a particular vision of the nation as primarily hindu or or you know driven by uh, uh, you know a hindu sort of civilizational push that's i think more difficult to ascertain and uh, you know as uh, it's tricky i mean i think you know, the 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 question i suppose is 
is, you know, is 2019 going to be like 2004, where there was a bit of a surprise that actually the Indian population, including the young population, did move away from from the BJP, and it was partly because they didn't feel that they were sharing in the so, in the social gains associated with economic growth, and it was partly, as as you just observed, that that some of the aspects of the sort of rhetoric of Hindu nationalism were were not um, any more particularly attractive. So it, it's possible that the the same kind of cocktail will will exist in 2019 of of sort of a sense of social and economic exclusion and uh, you know a sense of being a little bit tired of the same message coming out um, from the government. But it's very very difficult to tell. And as I as I said, one has to distinguish between support and enthusiasm on the one hand and the actual decision to vote on the other because. One thing you see again and again in elections in India is people putting their votes in for, pe- for, for politicians or parties that they don't actually very much like, but they feel like they ought to, or ultimately it's, it's the least bad choice that they, that they want to make, which is, of course is not distinctly Indian. It's, some, it's an aspect of how people vote across the world. We'll just have to wait and watch. What is the state of youth unemployment in India? My impression is that for young people, it's hard to get a job if you don't have a master's or a bachelor's degree. And even then, you may not get a job in your chosen field. Oh, that's absolutely right. And you know, the recent NSSO figures show that youth unemployment in India is something around 16 or 17 percent. Now, those figures are contested, but I, my view is that they're fairly robust. Uh, and of course, beyond that problem of outright unemployment, there's a very large problem of underemployment where people are working in part-time, insecure work that doesn't reflect their skills, ambitions and credentials. So both outright unemployment and underemployment are becoming increasing problems in India. In 2010, I wrote a book called Time Pass, which drew attention to this problem uh, based on fieldwork in Western Uttar Pradesh. I talked about the emergence of a, t- of a generation of young people who described themselves as people with nothing to do, who were doing nothing, but also in some sense saw themselves as being nothing. A very intense form of social suffering associated with a prolonged period of unemployment or underemployment. When I talk to, to young people in the same area now, they say that actually that book is more relevant in 2019 than it was in 2010. Someone told me when I visited India two weeks ago, I felt like it had been written yesterday. And this reflects the way this this problem of unemployment and underemployment of young people has intensified over the past nine years rather than dissipated. In her recent book, Dreamers, How Young Indians Are Changing the World, the prominent Indian journalist Snigdha Poonam writes... The world's future depends on young Indians meeting their aspirations, but it's a pipe dream at this point. How big a problem is this disconnect between young Indians' aspirations and their reality? Well, I think it, it's a huge problem, uh, and I think the book is the Dreamers is is very successful in setting that out. It, it's worth again going back to to the point about demographics. One in eight people in the world is an Indian under the age of thirty. It's worth repeating that one in eight people in the world is an Indian young person, someone under the age of 30. Now, that's an extraordinary statistic. And 
eat gives a sense of the importance of of that demographic for the future of of Asia uh, and of the world. Now, unlike the same generation 25 years ago, that set of young people are very well aware of events in other parts of the world, which are streamed to them via uh, their mobile phones or on the internet. They are increasingly in secondary school, including young women. Uh, and in school, they're learning to obviously um, dream big. Uh, and the government is also encouraging those young people to see themselves as part of a new India that's that's modern, that in which people are based often in urban areas doing uh, you know, kind of what what historically has been described as sort of middle class work, service work. Uh, and you know, where, where, where you've got that situation of both demographic growth and a rapid sort of revolution of rising aspirations, you, you need an outlet for young people so that they feel as, as they move into their 20s and 30s that they're achieving the goals that they, uh, that they desire. And that's not happening. And the question then, well, is how much of a problem is that? Well, obviously, for the young people concerned, it's a, it's, it's a big problem and for their families. And um, you know, young, young people are not passive in that situation. They actively and creatively seek ways to, to make do. That may be entering into fallback work in agriculture. It may be finding uh, jobs that perhaps they, they weren't aspiring to originally, but which provide a, a means for establishing a family and, and in, you know, getting by. Uh, you know, in, in areas like sales and marketing. Uh, but but there is also a lot of just disappointment, I think, and uh, a sense of sort of stuckedness and, and limbo that, again, I, I wrote about in detail in, in my book, Time Pass. What's surprising, perhaps, is that that sense of um, social suffering hasn't led to more unrest in, in India. And I think there are several reasons for that. I think partly because India is a democracy, people have an outlet for frustration through the political system, through voting, through demonstrating on the streets. I think a second reason why there hasn't been more uh, political mobilization is that people often perceive this as a personal failure rather than a failure of, of government or of society or as, as, a, as a structural failure, as social scientists would put it. They see it as, well, I didn't try hard enough or I wasn't, I wasn't successful enough in that examination. So it's, it, you know, quite a lot of this failure, I think, often is personalised rather than as seen as a reflection of the, the sort of structural features of the Indian economy and the wider institutional environment in which people may be trying to start businesses. There's a whole history of commentators on India talking about the country as being poised to sort of fall into um, unrest. I'm, I'm not going to do that. I think you know India is a it, it holds together, and uh, as I said, people are, are young people are actively finding ways to to make do. But I do think that it's it's a it's a major social issue at the moment. Uh, the, the the lack of um, capacity for young people to realise their aspirations, and it's it should be and will remain an absolutely critical uh, issue for government in India. How has national politics played out in Indian universities under Modi? Well, the information that that leaks out on on this issue tends to come from a small number of the the very well-known universities in India. So uh, universities like Jawaharlal Nehru University, Hyderabad University, 
uh, Delhi University. Uh, and there has been, uh, over the past few years, as, as you'll be well aware, a series of controversies over the government's treatment of, of student protesters in those universities and of you know, the, the, the ideological, the role of, of, of government in shaping how universities operate ideologically through, for example, the, the appointment of particular vice chancellors with particular views on politics that then shape those institutions. Now, that's a, that's a very important debate, uh, uh, and it's one that people can follow through a whole series of articles in, in, in um, magazines and newspapers in India. What interests me more is what's happening outside of those well-known central universities, what's happening actually in, in universities like the one that I worked in quite, quite a bit uh, 15 years ago, Chaudhry Charan Singh University, which is the sixth largest university in the world, if one excludes uh, universities that provide distance education, and is actually, according to, to some sources, the second largest university in India after Indira Gandhi National Open University, which of course is largely a distance university, a distance education university. So what's happening in those state, big state universities that are affiliating other colleges? Uh, and that's an area which desperately re requires consideration. I think it, it, it would repay close social research. You're seeing uh, the emergence of different types of student politics to, to that which existed 15 years ago. And some of those forms of student politics are, are linked to a Hindu nationalist agenda. Some are not. It, there's a great deal of, of foment in, in those sort of more provincial universities that operates under the radar and which commentators and social scientists know very little about, but which is really important in terms of shaping the environment in which the vast majority of students in India study, which is, which is in colleges, not actually in universities. It's in colleges uh, affiliated to universities like Chaudhry Charan Singh University. I, I would be really interested in hearing from anyone who's listening to this podcast about their views or experiences of of the curricula of student action in India's colleges where most people study. Do you think there is a growing shift towards illiberalism among India's youth? Well, I, I think that's a really interesting question. I, I think first one has to think about, well, what is liberalism? And if we define that relatively narrowly in terms of you know, a, a commitment to formal equality and individual freedoms, then I think there's evidence both ways. There's evidence of young people contesting that, that vision of uh, those visions of formal equality and individual freedom, for example, through uh, their views on, on areas like sexuality. So there was a recent Center of the, the Study of Developing Societies survey that showed that the majority of young Indians didn't approve of homosexuality. So there's some evidence there of a certain kind of, you know, inverted commas, illiberalism. Uh, there's evidence of young people's involvement in uh, societies or organizations that are policing people's, you know, right to eat, and eat certain foods, again, which would suggest the rise of a certain form of illiberalism. But, of, but there's also, of course, a, a great deal of evidence the other way that young people are very active in non-governmental organizations that are seeking to, uh, to protect people's formal equality, uh, protect people's freedoms. 
the number of youth NGOs in India is growing very, very quickly. There's also, I think, a very interesting debate about the relationship between the individual and liberalism in India. So an argument that's been made by several people is that actually liberalism in India is organised around a sense of group rights rather than around individual rights. So it's perfectly possible to be part of a caste organisation or a religious organisation that's about equality and freedom, but nevertheless is articulating those notions of equality and freedom through reference to caste and religion. So that would be an argument that I think lots of Hindu nationalists would make is that even though Hindus are the majority and even though they're making an argument in Hindu terms, it's it's an argument about tolerance and about liberalism rather than about violence or exclusion or or limiting people's freedoms. So it's a very complicated question. There's there's evidence both ways and there's also a, a... a tangled set of, of debates about whether you can have a kind of liberalism based on a sense of group rights and whether sort of Western, so-called Western visions of liberalism can really be applied to a place like India where you know, notions of religion and caste and family are so strong. So that might be a more detailed answer than you wanted, but it's one that really interests, this is a question that really interests me. What do young people think now in 2019 that their parents or grandparents may not have thought at the same age? Well, I think that one of the effects of more young people studying in secondary school is that they've often absorbed notions of citizenship and good government that are communicated in school textbooks. So in one of the villages where I work, I was sitting working with a young person who was doing an English lesson recently. And one of the English exercises was to write a letter to the local district magistrate in English, complaining about the state of the drains in their neighbourhood. And this was obviously an attempt not only to learn English, but to inculcate a particular vision of the citizen and of the state. And I think the effect of having large numbers of young people in school, being exposed to these narratives is actually that many more people have accepted and and appreciate that kind of vision of of rights and citizenship than in the 1990s when I started doing fieldwork in North India. So you see that reflected, for example, in young people's support for anti-corruption movements. You see it in terms of young people's uh, questioning of forms of malpractice that exist in certain bureaucracies in in India. Another point I'd really like to to stress is is the the revolution that's been happening in India with reference to women's and especially young women's rights and capacities. And that's, I think, really a major success story in the last 20 years in India or or 30 years is that women and young women have have achieved much a, a much greater a degree of autonomy and voice in, in at all levels of society and and you know in cities as well as in villages now that comes of course with all sorts of caveats about you know prob- continued problems of gender violence of you know uh, disparities in terms of pay and access to schooling and social goods nevertheless i think that is a a really important point to stress about you know the achievements of india in the period since 2000 that was Craig Jeffrey speaking with Bageshri Saviasachi. 
Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation. And today's episode is part of a bigger podcast being put out by The Anthill, a podcast by The Conversation UK. It's called India Tomorrow, and I really urge you to check it out and sign up to the newsletter to stay up to date. Our theme beats today are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks, and you can see a full list of credits and a transcript on our site at theconversation.com. My name is Sananda Cray. I'll chat to you soon.